Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles, and as always, I am the host of the Sendcast, and I'm also the managing director of B Squared. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, then welcome, welcome to the Sendcast. The aim of the podcast is really, really simple, and I say this a lot, but we want to help lots of people learn more about special educational needs and disability, and not just that high level few bits of information, a good understanding of all the small bits within there. In this episode, we're discussing the long-term consequences of lockdown for neurodivergent students. My guest this week is Miriam Saffer. Miriam is an inclusion and SEND consultant specializing in neurodiversity. The SENDcast is created and produced by us here at B Squared. We are the assessment people. We are known for helping schools to show the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make. And over the last few years, we've been creating an inclusive assessment system that can be used with all pupils in primary schools. The system has different levels of detail for different levels of ability, but it makes looking at the whole school data, comparing your SEND pupils and your non-SEND pupils and all of those things really simple. It reduces teacher workload by only having to use one system and our new features to simplify report writing makes life so much easier and finally it saves schools money. And a big thing for us, by having everyone in one system, those pupils with SCND will get supported in the way they need to be. Visit the B-Squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me to take you through our assessment software. Now, let's get on with the podcast. On this week's show, we're discussing the long-term consequences of lockdown for neurodivergent students. My guest this week is Miriam Safra from Illuminate Inclusion. Miriam is an inclusion and SEND consultant specialising in neurodiversity. Miriam supports families, professionals and community organisations, and as well as her training and support around neurodiversity, Miriam also provides inclusive and accessible fitness training. Welcome to the show, Miriam. Thank you for having me. You are welcome. If you look at the world around us, there are very few reminders of COVID. You might see old signs left on the wall, empty sanitizer dispensers, etc. But apart from that, it's as if it never happened. Problem is, there is still an impact on nearly all of us, and more so for our children. And for some, this will last for a very long time. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is something that is going to continue for many years. And I don't think we'll ever we'll see the full impact of what's happened, you know possibly even for another 10 years till the, the children that struggled with this early on in their childhood has become adults. And we see that whole generational cycle and what impact it has as they become adults. But it's, you know, you, I saw in the news, as school started to go back, the numbers of children that weren't going back to school and it was sensationalist headlines. And since then, everything has died down. Like you said, a lot of the signs of COVID aren't really there anymore. But so many of the young people, and especially some of the ones that I work with, are struggling so much. And it's been two years, sometimes more now, where they have missed almost their entire education. They've missed all aspects of life. Their health and lifestyle is, is just totally changed. Their friendships have deteriorated. Any of their social skills sort of aren't there. Their sense of well-being and self-esteem. It's, there's so many factors that are involved, not just relating to their school life 
And, and these things are going to still continue to happen for a long time. Definitely. I've got a 17-year-old daughter, so she was kind of mid-teens through COVID or sort of, and almost like her, a lot of children, she knows kids, she's 17 now, young people she knows, they're all kind of, the social bit isn't there because they missed out on so many years being in school that the socialness, and my daughter will say she's really socially awkward, that she gets put in a group and she finds she's the least socially awkward. And it is just, I think these skills that we take for granted that we've picked up through just living life and you learn so for so many children being not being in school missing out on sleepovers missing out on after school clubs missing out on going to soft play for years and learning how to socialize has a really big impact definitely even what you said about your daughter that she she will describe herself as socially awkward Young people's perception of social interactions has changed as well. It doesn't flow as naturally. They're more conscious about how they feel going into social interactions. And that goes for all young people. So when you have a young person who struggles with social communication, all of those difficulties are exacerbated massively. And anything sort of that has deteriorated over COVID is so much more difficult to relearn those skills than it would be for anyone else. And everyone is struggling. So where are those who were struggling before? And what have we left? What situation are they left in now that where they need so much support that they're not getting access to in order to kind of get back to any kind of perception of normal, I suppose, although it's not the same thing as what we would have thought of normal before. What I find interesting is I know, and we're sure we, most of us know someone like this, where they lived a very busy life. They worked in London or worked wherever, really busy. COVID happened and they can't return to that previous life. No. It's too much. And you're sort of going, that's really, because from a child's point of view, I go, okay, kind of what your idea of normal, you haven't got that much experience to fall back on. But when you're an adult, you're going, well, this is a two-year blip. I'll just go back to what I was doing there before because that's normal. But if you can't return to that, then it's kind of like, my friend put it as, it's like putting a frog in boiling water. If you put a, a frog in boiling water, they jump out. Yeah. If you just put that, bog, that frog in the water and turn the temp, that's, that's generally our life. We slowly take on more stress. It gets more complicated and we don't notice but COVID is us basically getting out of the water and then getting back in and going, this is really hot. I don't like this. And that's for us as adults who have this experience to draw on and understand. But children can't contextualize and say, it's such a very strange experience for them. Right. I was actually reading something the other day around people going back to the office post-COVID and how productivity in an open office environment has drastically decreased overall because of the way that our brains have adapted to working in a different environment. So, and, and it kind of, they um, attribute it to neuroplasticity and sort of the ideas about our brains physically change and structure as we adapt to different environments. But because we've got used to working in a quiet space where the noises you might have to contend with are like the hum of the refrigerator or kind of a, one individual car that goes down your quiet street if you're living in a quiet area. And then you go back to a workspace and that jumps so quickly to all the different noises. Even if you could cope with that before, 
chances are now when you've spent two years adapting to a much quieter environment, it's hard. But as you said, as adults, we've got the experience. Gradually, you can kind of relearn and retrain yourself and re-expose yourself to those environments because you've got that past experience of knowing, okay, well, it will turn out okay. It's just a bit of a change and we can get over the blip. It might be a long blip, but we can get through it. The whole process of, of a child from when they start school right through to when they're leaving school, every year is so different. Their experience of social interactions, their language that they're developing, the, the academic pressures that they're under, it's so different at every step that they don't actually have an experience of what life is going to be like to go back to because it's never going to be the same as what they had before COVID. And each year is, I'm going to say our lives as adults are pretty static. Yes, yes you're teaching, time, yeah. you're working, but it's kind of a slow progress, but very kind of year on year, it's quite repetitive. But as you said, at school, every year is different. So you, it, it's really, so you, anything you miss out on that year is going to impact the next four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years. Whereas you stop teaching for six months a year, you go back and it's, oh, it's teaching again. I've just yeah. got to get back on, back in the swing of it and get back into my old routine. As you said, there isn't an old routine if you're going through school. Right. It's interesting. I was one of the, a young person that I was working with who'd been out of school a couple of years. And we had a speech and language therapist come in just to assess. And I said, my, my way of describing his language is I said, it's almost like all of his development and up to two and a half years ago was on track. He was meeting his milestones in terms of his social skills, the kind of vocabulary he was using. And it just seems to have stopped. It's halted. And that kind of development over that period when there wasn't school in the same way and he wasn't accessing learning online, it, he's just got a huge gap of two and a half years in his language and his communication skills. So obviously there's not an exact, you, you can't say that exactly, but in terms of what the findings were as well with the speech language therapist, the gaps of what you would expect a young person to know were clearly in those two and a, that two and a half year window. So to go back and relearn that when you're at a different stage in life is really difficult. But if we then apply that to, well, what would your physical development look like? What physical strength would you have in your muscles over that time? And what might have deteriorated? What exposure to different sensory environments have you got used to as you've maybe changed from primary school to secondary school when you're used to different noises and you're used to different crowds and spaces? What level of independence have you kind of developed over that time if you're starting to use public transport on your own even with your academic skills what would you have done with those skills in real life if you're at an age where you're learning adding in subtraction and working out a change can you now not go to a shop and and work things out for yourself and what situations does that leave you vulnerable in outside of school and outside of that learning context and if we look at all the different aspects of a young person's development across their physical development their academic attainment their mental well-being their social development all of these different factors and you kind of put it all together and you realize what a young person has missed over a couple of years we can then start to see a totally different picture about why some young people are finding it so difficult to go back into normal life. Yes. And I think in schools, and it was really hard. Schools were really limited on their choices and what they could do. And I, I just remember I, I ended up, for most of the time I came into the office, I was on my own because there wasn't the space at home. But I remember just going into my daughter's bedrooms and 
they would either just sit there at their computer and early on fly through the work and then get on to doing something else. Or if it was the live lessons, they just sat there in their chair all day. And it was, you walk in and it's pure silence. I'm just going, this is not right. And one of the things I got my daughters to do is to, while the teacher's talking, you listen. But what you can do is have your phone next to you on FaceTime with a friend. Yeah. So in kind of try and get that social. So when she's writing, she can still have that bit of fun with her friend rather than just sitting there in silence. But it was horrible. You kind of know the reasons why it was like that. But socially, see, she just kind of didn't socialize apart from that person on FaceTime. We went for a walk once a day, but children, especially at secondary school, most of them are walking to school. They're walking all around that school all day, carrying their bags, and they're walking home. I think my daughter, she, we got one of those um, Fitbit type things. I think someday she was doing like 18,000 steps just being around school. Yeah. So suddenly stationary in her room. Right. It's crazy, isn't it? How much do those things change? And I, I was working in a school at the time and the priority was how can we make sure, even for children with SEND, that they are not missing out on the academic progress? We still tried as much as possible to have social skills groups online and things like that and invite children in where they were vulnerable into the, the bubbles in school. But you can't replicate that environment. And if the focus predominantly at that time was how can we keep up with delivering the academic content and helping these young people work towards exams, then, you know, what are we doing with all of the other issues and the other aspects of their development? And there were those sort of, uh, the school that I was in at the time did some great stuff about sending around sport bits every day. And people were looking at like the Joe Wicks and these sort of YouTube videos and all those sorts of things to kind of get themselves moving. But it was very much, things were isolated. It wasn't walking around school and chatting to your friends at the same time, going to lessons. Everything's integrated in like a holistic pattern in life. And what we're doing when we're sitting behind a computer at home is separating everything. So you're learning at one point and then you might be chatting to your friend on FaceTime and it's great to have them there, but you're still a bit limited that you can't really talk to them and listen and you can't look at the work that they're doing. And then you might go for a walk afterwards, but everything is totally separate. It's not merged in one big picture anymore. No. And I also think if you are doing something like you are walking to school with a friend, you're walking around school with your friends and you're walking home with a friend, you won't really notice you're walking. Right. When you have to go for a walk on your own, it's not quite so interesting. And it will really feel like doing that horrible exercise they make us do. Definitely. I think there's an element of that in school lessons as well, of which subjects do children enjoy? And do they enjoy it because they really like doing maths or did they like it because that's the lesson where they've got a great relationship with their teacher and they get to sit with their friend and therefore maths isn't nearly as bad because you're not just doing the maths work. So the whole experience of learning is totally different. Definitely. And uh, yeah, it's the which subjects is really big. But one of the things, and my daughter's secondary school did do quite a good job of this, is when they came back, they did for the first term, but it tapered off quite quickly. They did a lot of group work, which I thought was brilliant. So rather than just getting in and come on, let's get back to just boring work, they actually did loads of group work to try and catch up on some of those social skills. But it was a term, I think, from memory of actually doing this. Let's do lots of group work. Let's try and get this discussion and people interacting. 
Second term, yeah, we fixed it or we don't have time for it. Let's move on again. That's a really interesting approach. I actually haven't heard of that being used much before. And it's a great approach for some. At the same time, if you had someone who was really struggling with their social interactions and was so nervous about going back to school, for some of the the young people I worked with, getting them back into the classroom was a matter of them knowing that they weren't going to be spoken to because the kind of the reciprocal interaction was really difficult. They were used to just sitting and listening. And as long as they could sit and listen, they were quite comfortable the other aspects of being in that environment were really anxiety provoking for them. So for some people, that's great to catch up, but I guess it's never going to be the same approach works for everybody. So where do you find that balance? And also if you're doing that for one term, like you said, and then you stop, one term is not going to replace everything that we've missed. It's just not. No. And you mentioned earlier about the kind of the children who aren't going back and there was, as you said, sensationalist newspaper headlines of ghost children and all this lot. And it's all disappeared. So we must have solved this problem. All those children must definitely, two years on, must definitely be back in school now. Right. So either they're back in school or it's no longer everyone's issue to worry about. It's just the parents that are not sending their children back to school. And really, this is now just a parenting issue because we can't say this is anything to do with COVID or anything else. And where parents are struggling, they're then referred for mental health support in many cases, which is fantastic and they need it. But it either seems to be a case of we're going to take the approach of this is a young person struggling and needs mental health support, which in many cases they absolutely do. Or this is the case of let's get the attendance officers involved and put the pressure on the parents to get these children back into school, which is where we see these parents sort of petitioning going, it's not fair. Why you focus on fining parents for their children not attending school? You're not offering us the help that we need. But then all that happens is you can be on a waiting list for CAMS to get support for two, three years. And in the meantime, there are no other support services around either. And what do you do about all these other factors that are influencing young people that adapting to different sensory environments and their physical health deteriorating? And these other aspects of life that aren't really fully being explored in terms of the impact that they're having on why a child or young person can't go back to school. Until we look at this holistic picture of all of the different reasons and all of the different factors that are affecting that young person, getting them back into school is, even if you if we do succeed a little bit, it's not going to solve all their problems. And what is life as an adult going to look like for them if they have missed so much and all we're doing is focusing on going, well, let's just get them through their English and maths GCSEs so then they can go on and do something else? Because it's not just about that. There's so much else we need to think about for these young people who are incredibly vulnerable and what we need for them in the future to go on to have positive long-term outcomes in all parts of their life. It is about, as soon as attendance people come in, it is generally not a supportive. It is a, you will, we must, you have to type language comes out. They start looking at the figure and saying, this is what we have to happen. And you have to send your child and rather than going a supportive angle, a lot of the schools, or a lot of parents' experiences, it's more on the threatening side to achieve that goal. And as you said, the parents would love their children to go to school. The parents would love their child to be happy walking out that door that morning or just the usual teenager nah, as they walk to school. They would love that. They would do anything for that. But right now, that's not possible. And they need support. And that child needs support not being told it's their fault. 
Absolutely. And there's so many factors that come into that. I think attendance offices, like you said, it can come come across as very threatening. I've seen really supportive attendance offices that go, okay, this is a mental health difficulty. We acknowledge that this isn't the parents' fault. So we'll attend the meetings once a term, but really there's nothing else we can do. You need to go and talk to someone else. In which case, it's not a good use of anybody's time because they are just there kind of making notes going, yes, we're on top of this case, but we can't actively do anything because they're waiting for mental health support elsewhere. And so this sort of, it just becomes either, is either a kind of a threatening issue that comes across very aggressive and trying to force the issue in totally the wrong direction, or it's just a tick box exercise, which is not useful for anybody. And these young people are then still struggling. And like you said, parents don't want their children sitting at home. They want their children to be happy and healthy and going off to school and seeing their friends. It's not a choice that they're saying, oh, you know, that's okay. We'll let you just sit at home and play video games all day because we know you don't really want to go to school. These parents are desperately struggling and really want to get the right help for their children. And I think the the issues around this come go, go, I mean, we could talk about so many other factors involved, but just down to even basic teacher training on mental health and on special educational needs around what are the potential risk factors for school avoidance? What are the potential factors that can influence someone's mental health, someone's learning? All, all, of, the, all of those issues are just not necessarily dealt with in teacher training initially. So then as teachers kind of rise through the ranks in school, so to speak, and, and they're then responsible for different areas, including safeguarding, including managing attendance, they don't actually really understand the underlying factors that are affecting that young person or what's going on in the home. And in many schools, especially secondary schools, they could have dozens of children who are struggling and they don't necessarily have the capacity to get involved in every one of these cases either to go, okay, well, what's going on? What help do we need? Oh, okay, well, this is just another one that we now need to make a referral to another service and we'll be waiting a year to get more help involved. The, the education around what's needed just isn't really there either. No, and I think if you look at the SEND and AP Improvement Plan, they talk about providing training and the mental health leads and all this lot. But it's like, yeah, training is one thing time to implement it and support children and priorities other than just providing training is also needed you can't just go right you've all got your certificates we've solved the mental health crisis right and a lot of the training is about we're going to make these extra free resources for training accessible to teachers and they can go and do that in their own times it's like yes because teachers have so much free time as it is that they're now going to go and spend more time on their own time learning about these things in a really sort of theoretical way or that's totally irrelevant to the context that they're working with every day and they just then they're going to spend even more time on top of that working out how to apply it within potentially a wider school system of where they are that's not necessarily going to adopt the same policies in the same way perhaps the government has realized if they focus on mental health too much all the teachers will look at it and go hang on this is describing me due to my current work practices and everything's put on me hang on i won't go down that route not at all definitely not we spent all day talking about that separately (laughs) we talked before we recorded a couple of weeks ago and we talked about that child staying at home so the emotional-based school avoidance or at home over covid and kind of not leaving that room and we talk about them being ready to go back into school but as we discussed there's a whole physical side we have these children who aren't leaving their room right and everything is done online and it's like cool get you go back into school spend a whole day around school again walk to school walk around school walk home again back to that 
it just it doesn't work that way if you were kind of rehabilitating anybody who'd had an injury and hadn't used their leg for a while after they'd broken it the physio and the sort of the training around just small exercises to build up strength in certain parts of your body it's handled so carefully I think just basic things like sitting up straight being able to at an angle where you can write comfortably with good posture is so much more difficult because if you spent two years not exercising your core muscles, your kind of overall core stability, it's a lot weaker than it was carrying a school bag around. All of those factors make the day so much more exhausting than it was before COVID. Until you've retrained and built up those muscles again, that's really difficult. I see quite a lot of children and young people who've gone back to school on a reduced timetable for, for various reasons. A lot of it relating to emotional difficulties and school avoidance, but also other factors sometimes as well. And just, you know, last year I had a young boy who was seven and he was struggling to walk up the stairs in the school building. And he just hadn't, he hadn't for two years had to walk up and down any more than the stairs to his bedroom once a day. And that was it. There was nothing else in terms of any physical movement that was exercising those muscles. And he was then really tired just from walking up the stairs in school. My nephew had the same issue. He didn't go, he didn't attend school for about three years or so. And when they got him to that place where he had a school, they realized actually just walking around that school to visit it, his knees were really painful because he hasn't actually walked that far. He's generally, he walks downstairs, has his food, goes out into the garden. They've got like a log cabin and he'll sit on the computer and play his games and talk to his people via Zoom, whatever, and then go have to... But generally, he didn't go up and down the stairs at all. It was just kind of walking around a house. And houses aren't big. Unless you are a film star, your house really doesn't take much more than 30 seconds to walk from one end to the other, if that. So the exercise he was getting, and suddenly, go walk around a school. And it was really hard work. So they actually had, they had a treadmill. So they basically got him to just walk and slowly build up his distance just to strengthen his leg muscles right it's you just these things we just don't even think about until no. you notice it as being a specific issue for one particular individual and you go well hang on a second if they're struggling maybe all these other children who are getting tired every day it's because of something similar what else have we not thought about that could be affecting these children as to why they're struggling at school but just physical movement is so important and it affects so many different affects everything being able to sit in lessons and concentrate you're dependent on your physical muscles to be in that position carrying your bag just getting in and out of the car for example getting on and off a bus or if you have to stand up on the bus because it's busy and it's then like all wobbly while you're moving and you have to balance and hold on it takes quite a lot of strength i like the way as you said that we both rock side to yeah. side <laughs> yeah it's you kind of go with it <laughs> on a bus we both went Woo! love it but no, it is all those things. And I think so. And I, I believe this is interception, being aware of your body. That's the right one, isn't it? Yes, it is. Your, it is your interception. You're aware of your own internal state of your body. So your balance and coordination is often more to do with, say, your vestibular sense, where we talk about sort of the, the balance in your ears and your um, and also your proprioceptive sense. But those are it's, your whole sensory profile is is a bit different, but it includes your spatial awareness, where you are, your balance, your coordination, but your interception, so your sense of where what's going on, even recognising when you're hungry, when you're thirsty. Children are now told that in school they 
have to go to toilet the toilet in their break times. When you're at home watching lessons online, switch off the camera and you go to the toilet when you need to go to the toilet. We aren't really in the same situation now as being in school where you might have to go through two hours of classes. And if you really feel like you need the toilet and your body is tuned in differently and your mind's tuned in differently to how it feels inside your body when things like that are happening, it's difficult. If you're not allowed, you know, most schools now allow you to drink water during lessons. But if you've forgotten to pack your water bottle because you're not used to not being able to go to the kitchen and just grab water whenever you need it, and you then don't have your water bottle, are you aware when you're getting thirsty? And how is that going to impact on your concentration levels? And there's so many factors like that. And actually, I've noticed more and more now when young people go for sensory assessments that it includes the interoception, it includes the vestibular and the proprioceptive senses. So you get a full picture of what a young person is experiencing. All the information we process from around us is sort of what we're taking in through our senses. And how we regulate our internal state is also to do with sort of how our brain processes that information. And if we're not able to process that in the same way, then when we're readjusting to a different external environment, it's going to be very difficult. And I think when you're sitting there and you're supposed to now sit up straight because you're not in that gaming chair that's in front of your gaming computer at home or laptop, whatever it is, or your Xbox, you have to sit up chair because no one ever sits on the back of it. You have to sit up straight in school more because that's the way the chairs are. And if you don't recognise that actually this is hard work and it's uncomfortable and you haven't, don't have the understanding of your own body, you would just be going, I hate maths, maths, oh, I hate it. You'd just be literally going, I don't like school, not realising actually it is that physical side that is impacting you the most maybe at that point. Definitely. After COVID, when I went back to working in an, in an office, I actually had got so used to sitting, standing, I had a standing desk at home and, and sort of moving when I needed to, that I would sometimes move and stand up and sometimes people would also walk around and I'd be sitting on the floor with my laptop on my chair because I needed to either just sit in a different position and and everyone was thinking like looking at me like this is ridiculous but for me to have to sit in one position all day is not comfortable I don't think it was comfortable before Covid but we all got used to it because for years and years we're sort of our bodies and brains are conditioned to work in that way because that's what's done. But if you, if it's not comfortable, which it isn't for most of us, and then for a child who, especially sort of at those ages where they are having to sit still for the first time now, and they haven't had to sit in that environment all day for hours at a time, because before COVID they were younger and at primary school and maybe it was a bit more free flow. It's a new experience and it's a really intense experience where sort of your physical experience of being in school and and what it's like for your body is really quite challenging, a lot more so than I think anybody would recognise. But yeah, I just think for so many young people as well, if they were at home working in different positions, parents might have noticed that their child was quite happily getting on with their work and listening to lessons if they were lying on their tummy on the floor, because that might be when they're most comfortable. And if that's what works for them, great. But actually, you can't yeah. do that in school. It's a lot more difficult. So what do you do if you then got used to working in a way where you're going, actually, I can learn better like this because I'm more comfortable sitting in a certain position isn't affecting me. I'm not putting strain on my muscles in a way that's not comfortable. I can move as and when I need to. I can adapt to my sensory needs and my sensory environment in the way that suits me as an individual. 
And now I'm going into an environment where I don't have, I can't do any of that. And not only can't I, because physically we don't have the space and the kind of infrastructure around us to do it, but also I'm going to be told off by the teacher because that's not an appropriate way of sitting in the school building. It's so hard. I think it is very much a case of we grew up thinking this is the way you have to do things. And then we had COVID and we all went, it's a lie. I can stand and work and I can still type and do everything. You know what? I can walk around with a cup of tea with a headset on wireless and have a phone call. I can do all these things in any position. You know what? I could have the radio on while I'm working. I can have the cat on the desk as long as it's not on the keyboard next to me, the dog next to me. I can create a really nice environment for me to work and I can work and I am happy and I'm getting my work done and it's brilliant. And you may and even you go find... Back and you're like, hang on, I don't have to do it this way. No, exactly. And you may find that actually all those time of doing it at home, you've developed what works for you because you don't have to think about what anybody else is doing. Even in an office, if you're walking around with a headset having a conversation, someone else in that open plan office is going to have to hear that conversation because you're kind of closer to them or further away. When it's just you, you don't have to worry about what suits anyone else. So in many ways, we probably develop different skills and self-awareness, even without realising, just by attempting to make ourselves comfortable to work from home. And yet you kind of go back and go, well, did I need to do it differently before? Like, why was I doing it that way? Why was everybody thinking we needed to do it that way? But schools haven't changed. We're trying to put young people back into a situation just isn't necessarily suited to them. And if we think about how office practices have changed in some ways that, you know, more man- office managers and uh, allowing more flexible working hours or kind of this hybrid model of working sometimes from home or sometimes from the office, depending on what you need, children aren't given the flexibility or the sort of ownership to learn in a way that suits them. And the same approach is just not going to work for every young person going back into school. No, and it is, it's, when you're at home, you find your way of helping you be organised and you find that way and it keeps you organised. As long as you're keeping up with your work, generally a lot of bosses were going, you know what, I've asked you to do this, you do this. That's all I'm really interested in. As long as you're happy and the work's getting, I'm great. And if you do it while dancing, if you do it while lying on the floor, I don't really care. And the problem is we've given the children this ability to go, look, you've got this work. It's not the most interesting, but if you can find a way of coping at home by rocking in your chair or swinging your chair or having this thing where you can play with it while that teacher's talking, great. And then we put them in school and go, no, no, you've got to sit up straight, do not talk, do not touch anything, do not move, because this is the way the world is. Problem is, no one is saying that is the, that is the way the world is anymore. You're looking at the world and it's like we're all hybrid working. We don't really use pens. We do our online meetings. When I think of the even things, I'm going to segue to very briefly into HS2. I'm literally going, I don't get the point of HS2. Zoom is even faster than a train. Right. Why do I need to get on a train? I can do it all. Oh, you can sign documents digitally now as well. I don't get the point of saving half an hour and all that cost. And it's like, we're trying. yes, less travel is better. But we do, the world has changed. Schools need to accept the world has changed and adapt to those rules. And it might be, and I, was, I saw a class, it was literally, it was brilliant. I can't remember where it was, but it was like there had beanbags at the front, normal desks in the middle and standing desks at the back and children could choose what worked for them. And why are we taking that choice away from them? If 
if they make that choice and it works, 10 out of 10. Absolutely. And giving young people that ownership, we work so, so hard as... I see so many professionals that are working with young people with special educational needs, teaching them to advocate for themselves and be independent and in making choices of strategies that work for them because they're going to need to use them in the future. But if they then go into a classroom and they're fidgeting with something because that's what helps them concentrate, they're then told off by a teacher. If they would need to wear headphones to cancel out the noise, they're told, no, you're not allowed those in the classroom. No, you can't stand up. We're trying to kind of, match a system that just doesn't work where all of the professionals and support network around a young person who's struggling is giving advice that would tailor it more to this approach that we now have as adults where we have more flexibility and then a child's forced back into a classroom where none of those options are viable or they're not allowed even if they were viable. I mean sometimes I see you know I really try and encourage where someone's really struggling with their sensory needs or any kind of motor skills, whether it's related to COVID or not, that we get occupational therapists involved. In secondary school, it's very rare. Usually when they do an assessment, it's a quick case of, well, can you write your name? Can you draw a stick figure? Can you dress yourself and do it buttons? If you can, you're not a priority sort of thing. But that doesn't cover all of the different aspects of what young person's struggling with. But when we get that advice, it tends to be tailored to how can we make this young person fit back into a school environment more easily? So the solution to these problems are let them wear noise cancelling earphones or if the teacher doesn't like that, then they can have earbuds or something that's more discreet and let them type instead of handwrite. Well, that might make them make the classroom environment slightly more accessible. It doesn't make school an inclusive learning environment because all we're doing is taking the little bits that we can from professionals that suit school the way that it is to try and get these young people to fit back into this mold that just doesn't work for them anymore no if you if i think back to my secondary school years if you went to the ice my ict suite in my secondary school in the early 90s it was a load of computers, load of chairs, load of kids in blazers or their school uniform type thing and ties and all that lot. And if you went into an office at that point, and I did my work experience, it wasn't that dissimilar. Yeah. A load of men in suits, women in smart clothes at their computers working away. And you're going, yeah, I can really see that in that ICT suite and everything about it, we're kind of preparing them for that world. Problem is, around 15 years ago, we all went, Actually, we don't need to wear suits in most offices. What we've learned is if you're comfortable, you get more work done. So here at B Squared, we don't really have a policy apart from nothing offensive and be comfortable. And everyone's more comfortable and everyone's happier and we get more work done. And some people work from home and some people work in the office. But we have Teams meetings. So we all have that thing. As long as we have ways of working... So when I look at school and I look at these strict uniform policies, I'm going, I don't know what you're preparing them for. I don't understand. When you have this policy of this is the way we do things, it's a very uniform way and everyone must do it the same way. I look at the world around us and going, you're not preparing them for anything. You're doing it for no reason. Definitely. It's so some of those policies, especially around uniform, you just think if it's not conducive to a child learning, is it really the most helpful thing? And yes, possibly you can have, even if you were to have something that was more simple, just that was jumpers with a school logo on, which is what I had at school and we all managed fine and we looked relatively uniform, but 
And then the, the bottom half just had to be black. Didn't matter if it was trousers, a skirt, as long as it was black. There is some sense that you can absolutely find a balance. I was visiting a school, it must have been a couple of years, no, last year maybe. And I was talking to a, a boy in year seven with Down syndrome. And we'd been doing all sorts of different kind of work in that department. And the head teacher walked along and was looking at what was going on. And all the students really calmly stood up in the SSCN department. So all these children are kind of are there because they need additional support. And the only thing the head teacher said when he came to the classroom is, please, can you tuck your shirt in? You need to tie up your tie properly. Those are the only comments he had for any of these children. And they were learning so beautifully and they were working so hard, wanted to make a really good impression, wanted to show the head teacher all the fantastic learning they'd been doing because they'd been comfortable and the environment was suiting them as much as we can within the kind of what, what was going on. And then you could see the teachers there standing there looking really embarrassed because the poor children had been told off, but also it reflected on them because it was almost that they were being told off for not insisting on higher uniform standards for those children. But those children are learning. What difference does it make? I will not comment on that at all because I will go off for a good half an hour on it. It makes absolutely no difference. The child, and it was on a recent podcast with Joanna Grace, we were literally talking about she hates wearing shoes. Her feel, her, it, it actually occupies her mind. If I have to wear smart clothes, the bit of me is constantly worrying, how do I look? How do I look? Am I following what's expected? Is my shirt tucked in? I, I don't like doing it. I wear clothes which aren't tucked in, T-shirt and jeans. It's my uniform because I can put it on and forget about it and focus on what's in front of me. But while you've got children who are constantly having to monitor their uniform, for some children, they just do it. Others, it is a conscious effort. And for others, the uniform itself is horrible in the first place. So having to have it tucked in, it makes it even more comfortable because it bunches up at different points because it doesn't fit quite right because I'm growing and my mum bought me one size too big. It just adds to it all and it's not needed. Right. I think some of the approach from schools that I saw post-COVID was that behaviours had changed in young people and trying to get them back into following rules and understanding the rules and the expectations in school. One of the easiest ways to do it was to start with one thing and the one thing they would start with was uniform because everybody could see it and it set an expectation of everything else. But the problem is, is that if everybody is following that expectation, it's at what expense, like you said, if, if somebody wearing shoes, that's occupying their mind to such an extent that they're not learning, that, that didn't seem to matter because the uniform came first and everything else would then follow. But there's not that understanding and awareness that by doing that and by enforcing those kinds of systems and regulations on children that just don't suit them when they have sensory needs and when they have just different ways of processing information around them and that things touching them and the kind of textures of fabric, then it's distracting. They're not learning. And then you start to wonder, why is the learning not there? And why is this child not coming into school today? And, and, And it builds. And actually, if we can remove some of these obstacles and these barriers like strict uniform policies and, and allow a bit more flexibility where we we can easily make those adjustments within a mainstream school it doesn't cost anybody anything either then surely those are good things to start with to allow an environment that can be more flexible for a young person who needs it but the thing i think with uniform is uniform is a really simple thing to assess and so you see a child, you can immediately see if they're following the uniform policy. It's a yes or it's a no, it's a detention. 
And by doing that, you can really quickly and easily say, we've solved that problem. Big tick for us. Everyone is now wearing the right uniform. We can see the impact of what we've done. Big tick. Everyone's happy we're making progress. What's harder to assess is the attitude to learning, the what makes children learn. All these different things is more a long-term thing. Actually, if we try this, will we see an immediate benefit? It's almost like politicians only doing three or four years at a time because that's their power time frame. So it's like, I need to see a result in this time frame, or I'm not going to do it. So it is, if I do the uniform policy and I get everyone to follow this rule and I can see that they've done that, then I can put a big tick on to say we have achieved this. Whereas if I say I want children to be much happier in school, well, there's no simple guidance telling me how to make children happy in school. It's really be hard to measure. And if they are happy, how do I show that to anyone? Can, if someone walks in, can I point to them and go, look, they're all happy? No, but I can go, look at, look at how smart all our children are. Right. I think sometimes there's a mix as well, and it's a total, I would say, completely incorrect mix-up between what is following rules and what is attitude to learning. It's in the same way that following a uniform policy is seen as good behaviour, which then is seen as having a positive attitude to learning because you're dressed smartly, so you're coming into the classroom ready to learn. In that, that also, I mean, another good one is being organised with your equipment. If you've forgotten a pencil, that's not good behaviour because you haven't come into the classroom prepared with all the equipment that you need ready to learn. So we're assuming that things like behaviour and relating to a uniform and being organised, which is an area that people really struggle with. No one wants to forget their pencil or turn up without the equipment. Sometimes there are so many reasons why someone might not have their pencil with them. But if those things then go down as, okay, well, you haven't come in with the right attitude to learning because you're clearly not prepared to come into the classroom, you're going to be in detention or you're going to be in the internal withdrawal room for the whole morning. You're essentially not welcome in my classroom because you haven't followed all of these steps that I expect you to have followed before you come in. And, you know, I've had young children who've been out of school for a long time and we're gradually trying to get them back into school. And it's a very difficult process when they are really struggling and they have got a range of emotional barriers that are affecting them and and they're struggling to get back in. But they may have gone into the classroom and I've had cases where even on the first day back in, they've gone into a lesson and been sent to the internal withdrawal room because they're not in the correct uniform or because they've forgotten the correct pen. They've been out of school for two years. They don't know what equipment they need. But the teacher's saying, I can't do anything about it. This is the school rule. I've been told categorically that any young person that doesn't come into the classroom equipped in this way and meets all of these, you know, can tick everything on this list, has to be sent out. We've just spent six months trying to get them into the building in the first place. This is the first time that all of the other factors have kind of been managed in a way that they can come in. And you're stopping them for something that is totally irrelevant to their learning experience. And it's just going to add another barrier to them ever wanting to come back into school again. It is, you're in the zone of rules for the sake of rules. And the problem is the pupils know that if I wear a pleated skirt or a non-pleated skirt, if I wear a, if my shirt is tucked in or not tucked in, if I'm wearing my blazer or not wearing my blazer, it will have zero impact on my GCSEs. My parents tell me this. I know this. Everyone else knows this. But the teachers who also know this 
it's the school policy, so that's what everyone has to. Everyone knows it doesn't make sense, but this po- this policy of uniform is enforced. And as you said, the fact they've got into school after two years, you know what? You should get uh, no detentions for the next year type award. If you are a young carer, yeah, if you have walked your little sister to school because your mum has to go to work and now you come here and you realise halfway that you forgot it, but there's nothing you can do because otherwise you'd be late and that's also detention, so you turn up without a pencil. What have they done? All the stuff they've done to get there compared to another child who's very fortunate that they either have a nanny or their mum is able to stay at home because they don't, whatever reason, and that mum does everything for them and they arrive at school gates, get out of the car and they're there compared to the other who have to get the bath and all this. It's a really fair, sorry, a really unfair social bias judgment this being ready for learning totally and you just mentioned young carers i mean we focused i focus in my work on supporting young people special educational needs back into school but there are so many other risk factors for school avoidance and there are so many factors that are associated with covid and with lockdown parents who have lost their jobs other physical illness parents that may be suffering from long-term covid and that's changed the family dynamic and you then have young people who are young carers that weren't before And all of these factors are not being considered. If we look at sort of even the government guidance on improving school attendance, it doesn't talk about, it talks about getting the right professionals involved in the network and what you need to do in terms of monitoring attendance and I suppose key buzzwords in many ways. But you're not looking properly at the underlying factors that are affecting these young people and their families and everything that's going on in their life and looking at where you need to actually address the root cause and the the factors that are affecting their entire life before we focus on what can we do to get them into the door of that classroom. And then again, after that, now they're in the door of the classroom, what do those teachers need to know? What do they need to know about their life experience? What's going on at home? What training do they need? What understanding do they need to kind of let the other bits of the rules go and make that classroom accessible for them so that they can stay there when once they've come back into it? Definitely. And it, it is, there are so many reasons and we are focusing on like emotional-based school avoidance, those children who can't come in after after COVID, but there is a much wider thing, reason, there's many reasons. But with that long-term effect after COVID is, as we've talked about lots of different aspects, are, is there something we haven't covered that people need to think about? I think the main thing I would say is look at everything. I would say start by looking at what the protective factors would be. So what would you do to protect this person's whole life in total, to protect their physical health and stop it from deteriorating in the first place, their mental health, their learning, their outcomes, what they want to do in the future with their life. School is actually a very small part of our life in total. What do we want for them in future? And then let's look at where there are gaps and things that may have occurred over the last couple of years not just relating to academic learning, because all the other things we've spoken about, physical health, mental well-being, other factors that have affected their life during COVID and during this period of school lockdown that are going to be influencing not just their academic performance and their ability to get back into the classroom, but their long-term prospects across all parts of their life, their employment, their personal relationships, their mental health and their physical health in the future. And we need to be looking at that whole package and really treating each individual in a holistic way to get the support right for them for their future not being bound by the restrictions of we just want this child back in the in the seat in the, in the school classroom because that approach is not going to do them justice it's not going to get them the support that they need 
Hearing you describe all of those things made me think of the Maslow's hierarchy of need. Right, absolutely. And at the top, I could replace self-actualization with attending school. Yeah. All of those things, the safeguarding, the belonging, all those things have to be there for that child to attend school. And if something is missing, they're not. And one of them is that that relationships, self all that sort of stuff, that is all in there. And if they're struggling with those things they're not going to get into school. Right. And if we're just looking at getting them back into school, what piece of the puzzle are you missing for this young person? What gaps have you ident- not identified that are creating a significant barrier for them? And if they are someone who has not been able to talk about it or doesn't really even know what that feeling is like because they haven't had it before, they're not necessarily going to be able to tell you what the problem is because they don't, this is what I experienced with many young people, before they get diagnosed with autism or ADHD, or they can't tell you what their experience is because they don't know that what they're feeling is different to somebody else. They don't have that perspective. So for young people that have gone through this process, not knowing or understanding why other people are necessarily finding it easy to go back into the school, we need to do that work for them and helping them to identify what are the underlying factors that are affecting them. It is not just, I am anxious about school, so I can't go into the classroom. It's far more complex than that. And we have to look at all those layers and, and anything that may be influencing their life and, and just their overall well-being before we can get them back into the classroom. And if they're saying, I don't know, or they shrug, or they don't really answer, is you've then got to take that step back and go, are they able to answer? Are they able to? When I asked my nephew, what do you think of school? He got his timetable out and told me how every lesson went. And I was like, okay, that is very precise because I asked you about school and you thought of your lessons. But I was trying to think of the whole concept of school. But that idea of what is it when you ask that question, what is that level of understanding you're asking? Are they actually able to answer that? And if they can't, it's... So we talked about that understanding that physical drain. Do they understand that actually they're really hating school because actually they don't have the fitness just to get through that day? Right. There are so many things. If they can't understand their own body or understand that they perceive the world differently or that not everyone has that trouble or things like that, if they can't understand that, then how are they able to answer? Absolutely. And if they can't answer, then what can we do to help guide them to that answer? Because that's our role. That's what we need to be able to do for them. And and I see lots of approaches of trying to get young people back into school that say, okay, well, first just walk up to the front door and then we'll go through the front door of the school. And it's all about sort of integrating back into the school environment. But have we thought about saying, well, all right, if you're struggling with being there in the morning, are you too tired? Do we try a different time of day? Do we try actually just walking to someone else's house and seeing if going into a different environment with different smells or different sounds or different lights is having an influence? Because if that's impacting you, we can start to identify where some of these problems are. How about if you haven't had any social interactions that we bring one friend over? If you're managing, many young people can cope for hours and hours in a social interaction where there's only one other person you bring a third person into that conversation and they can't cope at all because it's too much to pay attention to multiple different things at the same time if that then so if we know okay we can cope with two people can we have a third person in those conversations and see if there is a barrier there and then work with wherever that young person is in terms of all their different needs and their executive function skills at that point and build up from where they are till they're in a place where they can access being in a school environment. One of the things which made so much sense when this person said it was, instead of bringing them in in the morning and going, we'll see how you go, you're kind of saying to them, 
you're here till you can't cope, but there's no other rule. Right. Whereas she said, if you bring them in an hour before the end of the day, they know when the end is. They have a fixed point. I've only got to be here for an hour and the bell will go and we leave. And I leave with everyone else. I don't have to get up in front of everyone else and walk out because I can't cope. I leave. And do it that way. Start towards the end of the day and work backwards. So when you get to, you come in at lunchtime and they're going, cool, I've got that lesson, I've got that lesson. And then I go home. See, they know there is an end point already. Whereas if you go, we'll come in and we'll see how you go. It's like, well, how long are you expecting me? That, start, that can build up the anxiety because they don't know when or what they can do. But that made a lot of sense for me. Definitely. And there's approaches like that which work for some young people. For others, it's about where can we identify where their strengths are, even if they're a certain subject that are more accessible. That doesn't necessarily mean that their favourite subject or the, the subject where they are most comfortable with that lesson material is going to be the best choice. But it may be a case of they are able to cope because they're sitting with a friend or that teacher is someone that they've got a good relationship with. And it may be that some days those lessons are in the morning and other days that lesson's in the afternoon. And if that is the case, can we see a difference between how they cope with that lesson in the morning and how they cope in the afternoon? Because it may be that their energy levels are different. It may be that just the noise around school at different times in the day, if there's a break just before or just after, or if there's kind of, you're really near the lunch hall and it still smells from the lunch. Any of those things might be affecting that young person. And can we then start to, by, by building certain things into their daily life, see patterns and what is and isn't working and really fully identify the full range of factors that are affecting them? Definitely. There is, it's just, it is going to be a very individual thing, but there are lots of things you can do, but it's got to come from an angle of support, from the side of support rather than you must. You've got to understand that, in a lot of families, that if that parent has to stay at home because there is child not at school, then that is going to be impacting the income for that family. That is going to be putting a lot of pressures on that family. And they would love to be able to go to work and they would love for their child to be in school. They're not fighting you. It's actually, it's like, yes, take them in, but you can't actually support my child right now to get them in. You're not providing all the things my child needs to get them into the school. That's why he's not coming in. It's not we don't want him to, or I just want to stay at home and play, or I just think I'm not going to push him because, you know, he just doesn't want to. It's they want, they know school, maybe not the current environment, but they know that school in reality is the best. They know that through everyone telling them that if they get their GCSEs in maths and English, life is great. We all know this, which we, what we want for our children. So when it's not happening, don't think the parents are against it or the parents don't understand. They very much do, but they also look at their child and see those struggles that child is facing. They look at the school and going, they can't cope there. And that is the decision they've got to, they have to make. Yeah. And it, it's really important to think that the parents aren't against you. And it's rec- you're you're actually against yourself. Definitely, recognizing the balance of parents aren't against you; they are working with you. But sometimes they don't have the answers, and there's a lot of pressure, I think, on parents, and there's a lot of stigma still that they feel around it that they should have all the answers and that they should know what their child needs. And they might be able to say, "My child is absolutely not coping. I cannot get them out the front door. It is crippling them just trying to get dressed in their school uniform in the morning." But that doesn't mean that they're an expert in every potential barrier to getting into the school environment. So what other support do we need to have? Unless sometimes just one referral to comes and putting you on the waiting list is not going to be the answer. Let's look at who else can 
we get involved? Where else can you reach out to for support? There are lots of organisations out there. If we're looking at the wide range of factors that are affecting young people and not just we've got to get them back into the classroom, but what do they need in terms of help for them to grow and to thrive and, and, and make use of the resources that are out there in the best possible, most effective way to support these young people and to help parents get the help that they need from the right places. I think the parents will definitely be the expert on the effect, but they will not be able to unpick the cause. That's the thing is you can't just say school. That's a big area. It's something about that environment, something about the day, something about something. But they will not necessarily be able to unpick that. And it might take time to be able to unpick that. So, yeah. Anything else to add before we wrap up? I think we've covered a lot. I could keep talking about this all day. Um, <laughs> but it's one of those topics. It's just keeping it in everyone's awareness and recognising that this isn't over yet, that COVID and its consequences have, have not just miraculously gone away. We might be going back to exams. Things might look like they're settling. But the impact on that time period for so many young people, especially those with special educational needs and, and any kind of difficulties in mental health, that impact is going to be there for many years still. And we can't underestimate the effect that's having just because it's gone away for others. Definitely, definitely. Thank you for coming on the show today. Always enjoyed it. I could have ranted on various bits and managed to not do too much. That's quite good. We could have been here for a very long time. Miriam's given me a couple of links. Also got all her contact details. So as always, they're going to be in the show notes. So they'll be wherever you listen to the podcast or on the Sendcast website. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoy the show, share it with others. Tell everyone else about the Sendcast. It'd be great. Everyone knows B Squared, the people behind the Sendcast. Everyone knows us for helping schools to show the small steps of progress pupils with SCND make. Over the last few years, we've been creating an inclusive assessment system that can be used for all pupils in primary schools. The system has different levels of detail for different levels of ability, but it makes looking at whole school data and comparing your SEN pupils with your non-SEN pupils and all that sort of stuff really simple. It reduces teachers' workload by only having to use one system. It means you're not forgetting those SEND pupils because that's just one pupil in that system. And it's got lots of new features to simplify report writing. And finally, it will save schools money. That is often the driving factor above everything else is that money. So if you're interested and want to find out more, you'll find a link to the website and to book a meeting with me in the show notes. And you can also find about our online training, our CPD, read our blog, watch our webinars. It is all on the B Squared website. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Sendcast. It is goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye, everyone. <laughs>